Howdy, everybody. Welcome back to Keychains. I'm Steve. And I'm Ryan. So, last week was actually not too terrible uh, in terms of actually playing Keyforge. No, not at all. <laughs> Still wasn't a tournament, but uh, we actually had five whole people to play with. Five entire living people full of goo. Yeah. Whoa. Gross. Life goo. The, the goo yeah, of life. Nope. The, nope. No, uh, blood. That's what you guys call it. Uh, I mean, that's what we humans call it. Oh, God. Hang on. <laughs> so, yeah. So, it was a, it was a good, good day last Tuesday. Uh, we actually sold them out of Keyforge decks again, I think, between you, me, and our friend Brian. Yes, uh, we did. We, we Finally. It's like everything they had. It was like the last vestige of Keyforge availability in the, I don't know, half hour in any direction, it seems. Uh, yeah, and uh, and for once, I actually got a deck that had logos in it. I know. Still managed to have Untamed in the deck as well. <laughs> yep. You know, so it's funny. I don't have a single um, Brobnar deck because I never got the starter, so I don't even have that one. Yeah, that's fair. And uh, I was all... I have... Go ahead. No, oh, I was just saying, I have four. Dang. Four? That's ridiculous. Four. Yep. It's funny because Brobnar is such an aggressive, aggressively arted <laughs> faction. Like the art and everything, they seem very fighting and very aggressive, and they seem very combat oriented, which is great. But without a concept of true aggro, like you're not attacking a life total. So really, it's it just it, you know, it tickles me that uh, that the Brobnar, which is this aggressive aggro-y kind of faction house. Um, are really more of a control element because by eliminating your opponent's creatures, you're controlling their ability to reap and get ember and everything. So it's, I don't know, it's just, it's amusing to me that the, the aggressive looking faction, the aggressive acting faction is really a control faction. Yeah. It's, it's way more tempo than I, I even thought of it. It ends up being one of those factions where it's fun to like, it actually rewards you for, for not reaping. Yeah, I mean there are some there are some reap creatures. I think uh, I'm not even going to commit to. Oh uh, yeah, like the Kelpie Dragon and and things like that have a reap ability, but yeah, like they just reward you for fighting and yeah. it makes things so much more interesting. Like anytime I go up against a Brobnar deck, I I have to think about what creatures I'm going to put on the table because I, I they're probably not going to stay. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, There's times where it seems relevant to just, you know, declare that house. I know we've said faction like, you know, six times. That's my fault. That kind of got that in your brain. Uh, but there's times uh, where yeah. it's <laughs> where it's acceptable to just be like, um, I'm just going to I'm just going to declare this house, discard the creatures and hope to draw into something that's that's more relevant than the creatures. And probably actually... not a tremendous amount of the time, because at least if you put the creature on the table, they still have to run into it. But having damaged creatures on Brobnar's side helps them. So it's not impossible that there's situations where you just don't want creatures on the table against them, depending on their board state. Yeah. You actually just brought up a, an interesting point to me too. Uh, I was listening to, I think it was, I think it was the wild wormhole podcast and they were talking about how they don't like bad penny because bad penny just clogs up your hand, which I definitely agree with. Uh, but I think honestly, I, I would just discard her if you're having that many issues with her being in your hand. I mean, it does feel good to keep playing her over and over again. So that could be like the, the kind of like the reason why you think like, oh, I need to keep playing her. 
Uh, but I I learned that 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 issue too of like oh if I keep playing her or if I keep playing her she's gonna keep dying and then I'm gonna keep losing her and then she's just gonna come back to my hand and now my hand's just getting you know more clogged up so I don't know it was uh it was an interesting I, I had not thought of it the way that they had pitched it and so that, that made made it definitely interesting yeah that, no that's a really good point I mean that you know if you yeah, she just she's constantly clogging it around like that. I actually I I've I've never been in a situation where bad penny has uh been used to my detriment in that way. Um but I have been in situations where there's a, a logos card, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, where when he's destroyed he goes to the top of your deck. Um which it's kind of the same thing, sort of. Um, and that that like is really irritating <laughs> because I keep drawing the guy. And I'm like, in that particular deck, the Logos isn't a tremendously strong house. So I'm less incentivized to call that house. So I just keep getting this guy stuck in my hand and I can't discard him and I can't play him unless I call Logos. And then but Bad Penny and maybe I'm just lucky that any deck I have a Bad Penny in the Shadow House is solid. Um, I, I, yeah, I've never really had a bad experience with Penny, but it, it's still like, that's not to detract from their argument. That makes, that, that makes perfect sense to kind of be disincentivized to play her out because she gets clogged back into your hand. Yeah. And you finally got another time traveler deck. So what that, that's what three now? Uh, so I don't, th- so I, I miss, uh, in the show notes, I miswrote that. I thought it was a time traveler deck, but it's not, um, it yeah. is, a, or no, that's right. I did get a third one. I'm sorry. The one yeah, I was you... thinking of, Diesel, is not. Um, but the other one is is uh, Cicero, Berg, Wise Woman. Um, yeah, that one has yeah help from future self, library access, uh, time traveler, obviously. Rocket Boots is pretty sweet. So, and that one, that one's pretty sweet. Um, so, a note, Ryan, you always get help from future self if you get time traveler. I know, but alphabet, like the the way the card. Yeah, that, that was the first one. Yeah, I was just I pulled it up on my phone. So that's actually something I don't know if everyone is aware of um, that I stumbled across recently. And I I think it was on the Reddit. So I apologize. I can't give credit to. No, it was listening to the Wild Wormhole po- uh, podcast. Um, they mentioned uh, reading an Archon card. It is in uh, it's in order by the card type and then alphabetical. So when you're looking at an Archon card, the actions appear first, um, then the artifacts, then the creatures, then the upgrades at the very end. So if you're trying to look at someone's um, Archon card or your own Archon card and just get an idea of like, well, what, is, what am I dealing with here? You can kind of pretty easily scan through. And even if you don't recognize what a card does, um, you can see where it appears in terms of card type, alphabet, uh, alphabet. Yeah, alphabetically, uh, by card type, you can kind of see like, oh, that's an artifact or oh, that's an upgrade. Okay, so I know I need to worry about this type of thing or that type of thing with it. Um, it was a cool little trick that I didn't even realize until they mentioned it. And now I can't not see it. Yeah, that's pretty cool to know. I, I actually didn't realize that. I probably listened to that podcast too, and I totally missed it. Yeah, that's fun. I mean, I don't expect people to memorize everything we talk about you know, on the first listen. But by the time they've listened to us, you know, the same episode of ours four times, because I assume you know, our episodes are going to be so amazing that they're going to want to listen to them four or five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 times. Uh, probably by like time four, they've got most of the general topics memorized. 
I don't know if we're that popular, Ryan. Uh, well, I mean, all it takes is one listen to, and then you're hooked because we have the audio version of, you know, morphine in our our sonorous voices. I, I'm sick, so I don't know if my voice is so sonorous. <laughs> Wouldn't it, it might even be more sonorous, Steve? It might even be. It may be for the good of humanity that we shouldn't have recorded this podcast while you were sick. You mean the other way around? Your, dul- <laughs> your dulcet tones. All right. I think dulcet is the opposite. So FFG finally released their details about how chain bound events are going to work. And yeah, that's interesting. Very. Uh, so in a good way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I'm actually pretty excited about it. Uh, I finally learned how to get the app so we can actually track chain bound events. Uh, so I just need to talk to uh, the, the people at uh, our local game store to actually get it downloaded uh looks like it will require a webcam though uh so i'll have to pack that with me and just have to work with a them webcam yeah because you have to so you you have to register each deck well don't you just it. need a like a phone camera would work for that no so it's a it's a pc app so they at our particular local game store they have a phone attached to their or no i'm sorry they have their own phone and they scan yeah so it's so it's a pc app so you're right i'm sorry i believe it's a pc so, app yeah. at least uh based on what i can see from the ffg forums it seems like that is the case it'd be interesting if they released it as like a mobile app that'd be much easier <laughs> um right but it, again yeah. it's still something that's like bound to the the local game store so I don't know how that works for if they have a, a just a community member who does all the running of events. So I'll talk to I'm just going to end up talking to them. Uh, so we're going to actually run a chain bound event next Tuesday. Uh, so that'll be fun. Finally get to see some chains, some decks chained up. Uh, I wanted to actually look this up really quickly. It looks like right now, uh, since the chain bound event has gone live, the most the deck with the most chains are, is four. Yep. Uh, and the one that actually appears on the top here is uh, I saw someone post this one in the uh, in the Reddit. It is Cameron Airport M- Musician. So that's pretty good. <laughs> uh, it does look like it's a pretty good deck. But yeah, I glanced it, at that one too. It looked pretty solid. Yeah, it was pretty funny. Uh, but so yeah, so the deal is is that you're gonna play in a chain bound event, and depending on your wins and losses. And the size of the the event uh, determines how many chains you get uh, for each set of wins you get. So, uh, and then after that, the number of chains you accumulate increases the power level of your deck. So, once you hit, you know, once you hit one chain, your deck is currently like officially one power level. Then seven through twelve gets you at power level two. Uh, 13 through 18 brings you to power level 3. And then 19 to 24 brings you to power level 4. So the thing I was thinking about this, because a lot of people are questioning whether it's possible to get past level 4. Well, what I'm wondering... Sorry, what I'm wondering, is this lifetime chains or is this concurrent chains? Like, if I get, um, you know, 7 chains uh, and then I lose a bunch of games and go back down to zero chains does that mean that my deck is now power level zero or does it stay at power level two because it at one point had seven chains and then if i gain three more chains does that mean it's 
Um, or I guess if I gain six more chains over the course of a couple new tournaments, having dropped to zero, does that put me into power level three? Or does that mean that I'm still power level one at that point? Yeah. It, like wh- how, how do the chains cumulatively work or not work? Yeah. I think I'm not sure. We'll, I didn't see that in the article, but I might've just overlooked it. Yeah. It's possible. I, I've, I've seen a lot of people talking about it and they haven't really figured it out either. So I, I don't think you and I are a kind of in the, the woods here and, and everyone else is, is just has that knowledge. But, so what it looks like is how you accumulate chains is uh, if you go to any any event with four to eight players, which will be just a three-round event, uh, if you win all three games, you get three chains. Then if you win two of your games, you get two chains, and then one or zero wins means you subtract a chain from your deck. Uh, so that's how you're going to lose chains over time. Uh, any event bigger than that will be a four-round four event, uh, with four wins being four chains, three wins being two. The The only real difference between the other two is that if you get two wins, you your chains don't change at all. Uh, so if you if you win two and you had you know four chains going into it, you're going to leave with four chains. Uh, and then it goes back to one or zero wins, uh, subtracting one. So there's there's some interesting meta gaming that can happen with this. Um, uh, just kind of you know thinking of of what people could do with it. So you go to a, a eight player tournament, let's say, and you win your first game, but it's by the skin of your teeth, and you've kind of looked around and you know that everyone's decks are like way better than yours. Um, is it even worth trying to get um, a second win, knowing that there you have no chance of of placing well in the tournament um and getting two chains as a result or is it better to just drop right then and there with one win and that way you don't get any chains or lose any chains you might have had like if you don't think your deck stacks uh, excuse me if you don't think your deck stacks up well against the rest of the people playing that day it almost seems like you don't want to go past one win um if you have no chance of winning which kind of feels bad uh but likewise if you go and if you go to a tournament and you win, you get your, an eight, you know, again, we'll go eight player three round tournament and you win, you get your three chains. Um, is it worth it? Uh, and I, and I guess you have to look at the prize support. Um, so you would have to then to remove those three chains, you would have to go to three events, um, pay. Let's say usually, usually it's about five bucks for these things to get into an eight player or well, to get into just a, a casual, chain bound event i imagine it's probably about five bucks entry so you would pay five bucks for the the one that you won and then you'd have to enter three more times to remove your chains if you just basically entered and dropped immediately so you'd have to spend twenty dollars so you'd want to profit off of your your one win there um you'd want to make more than twenty dollars to make that worthwhile as an effort something to keep in mind it's probably it's really metagaming and like i don't think people are going to be sitting there signing up for tournaments and then immediately dropping just to clear their chains it seems like a huge waste of money i can't imagine an eight player tournament is going to have a a prize pool that's 20 more than 20 dollars for the winner but i could be wrong um i mean those play mats but it's just something to kind of keep in mind what's that those play mats are 20 bucks so there you go i mean i guess you you win one get your play mat and then you just 
pay fifteen dollars over the next three weeks or the next three tournaments to clear your chains. Yeah, I but think, is I mean, is that worth it? I, I I don't think it's worth it. And and honestly, I think the thing that will kind of come of this is you're either not going to play that deck, you're going to show up with something different, or you're going to want to see how. Like, I feel like. I feel like metagaming your deck seems like a waste of money in a, in a way. And yeah. And even if you're not going to stack up, like you're still going to get that, that power level, right? Like that power level change. So it, it just seems to make more sense to keep going and, and not worry about it. Like, and then on top of that, you'd be pleasantly surprised about like what you, what you run in, like you encounter, you, you could win a game and, and just because of a misplay or whatever, so people could just draw bad cards at the, you know, the wrong time for them. Unless you have library access, but yeah, I mean, or if you have Restringitus and they manage to get an entire hand of Sanctum and no way to remove it. <laughs> Poor Harry. <laughs> no, that was that was not a great great time for him. <laughs> but yeah, it'll be interesting to see how those how those kind of go. Uh, we'll probably find out next week, uh, but. And then I guess FFG also posted, pushed out some new uh, new app updates, which were none yeah, of the so things I was hoping for on the app itself. <laughs> no, I mean, they, they added favorites. Um, I feel like the favorite, I think I saw that favorites were in there previously, but maybe they just tweaked it. Like, I think I could assign a deck as a favorite in the app before. Maybe the thing that they added was the ability to filter by favorites. But I, I swear that I had the ability to do favorites before Tuesday, this past Tuesday. I can't remember. Um, uh, I think, I think the you could see what you had favorited on the website because the the thing is, you always see what happens in the website before it comes out in the app. Uh, so right. I think what what probably happened is you could see the favorites, but you but couldn't, you couldn't yeah. assign a favorite on the app, but. I feel like I had assigned some favorites to some some decks that I had uh, in the app while we were playing games, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, we don't have a wayback machine to go and check. Well, we could um, sometimes. The, the other from future self. Yeah, yeah there we go. <laughs> uh, the other app update was deck notes. Uh, you can now go into a deck, and there'll be a little note box at the bottom of the deck um, where you can put notes in the deck, which is kind of neat. Um, you can, you know, say like, oh, this is more of a controlling deck or remember this card or this is a I don't know. I, I can't think of an amazing reason to use it necessarily. I think it's still cool. Um, I think people will use it. Just personally can't think of why I might. Yeah, I am. Um, it turns out that I'm the worst kind of millennial and, and it's literally the millennials who were born before like 1990 uh, because like I hate typing on a phone. Like it's the worst experience <laughs> I I've tried everything. I've tried swipe typing. I've tried like T nine back when that was a thing on phones. I just hate it. I hate it. So I don't see. I usually will bring up. I'll try to remember notes about my decks uh, as I go along, and then I'll just type them in. Uh, you know, through the notes on the website. Uh, and honestly, a lot of my games end up being through the Crucible anyway. So I generally have the deck that I'm playing pulled up on the Master Vault while I'm playing on the Crucible. Just so I can add, like, because I've been tracking my wins and losses that way. So, makes sense. Yeah. 
how uh, how are your uh, your wins and losses doing uh, with your so what, with your your most played deck? What's your record right now? Uh, I think it's fifty percent. Uh, I think my most I That's think good. my most played deck is. It's gonna be uh, nope. That's definitely not it. Um, my most played deck is He Who Manufactures Spirits, and I have eight plays okay. with that. I have four wins, four losses. Nice. Uh, and but I do have a new deck that is Brobnar Shadows Untamed that has two wins under it, and I'm uh, do really like that. And that that deck is this is gonna suck to say out loud. And and I'm not going to spell it out loud. So if you can guess it, uh, or you can just easily just search by one of the words and find it. Uh, so the def deck is uh, F Falconson, Mine Runs Swift Scavenger, and that that seems to be doing all right. It has a lot of controlly bits to it, which I mean, just Brobnar, as we said in, at the top here, like Brobnar is just brutal in the in terms of managing the board uh it also has a Khalifi dragon in it so you know it doesn't help or it doesn't hurt no that uh that makes things pretty good on your end yeah so uh i guess moving along here we wanted to talk about mulliganing and taking your first turn and, and generally how we do these uh things and we're not saying that they're nece- necessarily right or anything like that but this is just our mindset on it so um, I guess, so I guess for you, Ryan, like, what do you normally do? Uh, what do you normally do when you start a game and you, you have, you kind of draw your hand and and you look at it before you've even started playing? Well, um, so when I draw my, when I draw my opening hand, I mean, obviously it's gonna, it's gonna matter if you're playing first or if you're playing second. Um, but in general, the first thing I look at is does this hand have a plan like what's my first turn going to look like what's my second turn going to look like uh is it clear what house i should go with first is it clear what house i should go with second turn um i don't worry too much past turn two uh when i'm evaluating whether or not to mulligan a hand um if i can see all the way to turn three pretty clearly uh then i'm happy but generally by turn three your opponent's done stuff and you'll need to change whatever your initial plan was so i'm not is that not too worried about knowing my turn three options? Um, generally, though, turn one, turn two, you don't have a lot of interaction necessarily, um, which interaction is one of the things I don't prefer in my opening hand. Um, if I'm the if I'm the second player, if I'm going second, uh, removal kind of sucks. Um, I don't. They're only going to have one creature on the board. Maybe uh, they may not play any creatures. They may do something else. Um, so if they have a creature and I have, uh, you know, the uh, if I have twin bolt emission in my opening hand, that's awful because I'm only going to get half the value out of it. And it may not even kill their thing. It may just damage it, which is OK, but that's not, you know, that's not a great opening hand play, um, especially if you don't have a lot of other things in that hand. Like if I have a bunch of creatures and then a twin bolt emission, uh, a bunch of logos creatures that is in a twin bolt emission and I'm going second, then maybe I keep that because I can either twin bolt them turn, you know, my first turn, or I can wait until they get another creature out and then twin bolt both of them. But if you have a removal heavy hand, that, that is not a good opening hand because you, you are then waiting for your opponent to do things before you are allowed to play the game. And that's never good. 
Um, likewise, ember control kind of sucks. Heavy ember control in your opening hand kind of sucks because you have to wait for them to gain ember before you can take it. Um, which, I, again, I don't prescribe to this idea of, okay, uh, you're going to play a creature. Uh, I'm going to go to my first turn and I will pass because I have ember control and you haven't generated ember. Now it's your turn. You put some stuff down, you generate two ember and now it's back to my turn and i guess i'll take one of those and so my game plan i'm now delayed an extra turn because i had to wait for them to do something before i could do something and sure maybe your ember control like you know you can play creatures and stuff but if your creatures are the things that like if you have creatures that capture ember when they come into play it kind of feels like a waste um and this isn't this isn't hard and fast every time this comes up this is what you should do um but it's it's tricky. Like if you, uh, the raiding knight, um, that's a, a sanctum card. It's a four power, two armor. Um, when it comes into play, capture ember. Uh, and you, if that's your turn one play, it kind of feels bad because you're just getting a vanilla, you know, four power, two armor, but that's not the worst thing you can do on turn one. Um, likewise, if you're going second and you play him and you can't capture any ember, it still kind of feels like a little bit of a waste. I mean, you can do it, but I think I would rather mulligan a hand if he's, let's say, you know, I'm very drawn to playing Sanctum on turn one and he's the only creature. Um, I'm very, I'm very drawn to mulligan that hand. I'd like to see more cards and maybe get a better opener. Um, but if he's in my second, you know, after mulliganing it, if he's in my uh, second hand, that's not the worst thing in the world to play him on turn one. Granted, you lose a little bit of his efficacy, but he's still a four power, two armor guy that can reap if there's nothing worth fighting. That's kind of where I look at as far as mulligans. Yeah, and I, I guess one thing to note here, too, is that you can only actually mulligan once. That's just something to kind of keep in mind when you're mulliganing is because you might have a decent-ish hand, but if you're not looking at something that... I think a lot of people do try to fish for that perfect hand for themselves, and unfortunately, I'm just not that lucky. So I tend to <laughs> keep more hands than I throw away because generally what ends up happening for me, and granted, this is just my experience, is I will have... I know what cards are in this deck. I know kind of the things that I want, you know, turn one um uh well at least going second like this is just purely in the, the sense of going second the, like i know what things I, I want how i want my hand to look so if my hand kind of looks like that i'm not gonna throw it away because my chances are i'm gonna mulligan i'm gonna draw five cards and then i'm gonna be like well now i have two in one house one in another house and one in another house and you know or you know I'm I'm just not gonna have a hand like a hand that's gonna feel like it's gonna be very very efficient, so I just I generally yeah, try to I, avoid if I if, you know like kind of the same ideas that you're you're saying here if if I have removal or you know amber control in my hand I will probably pitch that right and some good examples so if you have um like twin bolt emission that's fine to keep because it's going to be relevant sooner rather than later I think the big the big thing to consider is like. Are the cards in your hand conducive to having turn one and turn two impactful? Like if you have Miasma in your opening hand, um, that is not – that's a dead card. I, actually, one of the things I do physically as I um, I sit there and I'm trying to learn and get better at mulliganing. Uh, so I guess a big caveat on this whole thing is that we're not pro players. We're not great at mulliganing. Um so take all of this with a grain of salt in your own play experiences and your own knowledge. Um, but as I'm learning to get better at mulliganing, what I'll do is I'll look at my hand uh, and I will physically take cards that will be irrelevant for the first several turns and set them aside and see what cards I'm left with. So Miasma, 
um, too much to protect, um, bait and switch, these kinds of cards, I, I take them and I set them aside and say, okay, well, what am I left with after I get rid of these cards that are going to be useless? Uh, key to dis. Um, actually, that one's probably worth keeping because you put that on the board right off the, the bat and then it kind of forces them to play around and it can slow their tempo. But regardless. If I was going first and I had a, a dis hand, like, you know, a dis heavy hand, and key to dis was one of those cards, that's my that's my absolute first play is key to dis, yep. pass turn. Yeah. And so my, my step one is separate the cards a little bit like that. Then with the cards that I have left, the playables, um, what do I have? Are, is there a house, like are all of them shadow? Okay, well, if all of my playable cards are shadow, um, like let's say I have, a, you know, a, a bad penny, a seeker needle, and a uh, silver tooth. Um, that's, that's a great opening hand. Even if, I ha- even if my other three cards are another faction, or I have a bait and switch, or I have a miasma, uh, I'll honestly just cycle the miasma on turn one. Uh, it's going to be a little while before they generate a key, hopefully, fingers crossed. Um, and I'll just cycle that for the extra ember and play the rest of the cards out and then draw back up. Uh, but if if I don't have a clear house or let's say I have, you know, two Sanctum, two Logos and two Shadow cards and there's like one creature in one of the houses and then a bunch of removal and a bunch of uh, miasma type effects and stuff that's more relevant in a late game than an early game. I'm, I'm going to ditch that hand. It's just not worth keeping. I Ideally, I would like to see a house. Or I would like to see a hand that has two houses maybe one card from the third house i can i could understand but like you know the rest of it's just two separate houses um and a a very clear indication of i'm gonna do this on turn one and then i can declare that house again on turn two ideally in a perfect world i can declare that house again on turn two and do more things um or i have relevant things to do instead of declaring that house like i don't i don't want to keep a hand that can't operate without new cards I guess is a, a good way to look at it. If, if for some reason I can't draw any cards on my next turn, I right. want my hand to, to be playable across two turns. A good example of what I look for, for what I want my turn one plays to be um, going first versus going second is obviously important. Um, but when I'm going first, I want, I want to keep a hand where I can play a card and then be able to use that same house the following turn. That's that's my goal. Um, I play my Sanctum creature. Uh, he comes in obviously exhausted. I ready him. And then it comes back to me and I have more Sanctum cards so that I can benefit from my turn one play while still doing more things. Um, if you play a Sanctum creature on your first turn as the first player and then it comes back around to you for turn two and you have to go with a different house other than Sanctum, it feels bad because now you've got this guy on the board. He's not going to do anything. I mean, it's not the end of the world. It probably won't cost you the game, but it's just not as efficient as I want my first turn to be. So that's what I look for when I'm, I'm mulliganing and everything. Uh, going first on turn one, it that, that seems to be the trickiest part uh, of, of really just the, the beginning of the game for me because uh, oftentimes I will play something I will either play something that can be effective on its own or play something that I can kind of set up for turn three or four mm-hmm. uh, so so if I have if I have a hand that's like four Brobnar cards you know and then maybe like a, a discard and a shadows card and, and let, let's just say for for instance, uh, that that discard is is uh, key to dis. I'll generally turn one, play key to dis, and then play Brobnar the next turn. Yeah, that's a great just to set up what's what's going to because then I can. Uh, well, first off, 
Ketodis is probably a bad example because it has Omni, so <laughs> I mean you can use it on that Brobnar turn. It's not a bad example though because that's that's a great example of even it's kind of like a it's an Omni house. So you're you're choosing a play that will potentially reward you on on your next turn which is exactly what you should be doing i mean whether it's yeah and whether or not you use it on your next turn it's available you didn't waste your turn playing it you know yeah i mean we can just both agree right now that mac the knife is the best turn one player oh my god i yeah mac the knife turn one (laughs) choose shadows mac the knife bad penny secret needle that's a great turn one well no you can't do that turn one but you know what i mean no, but but yeah, it's like you you play a card that can be that can be used in any house, whatever you choose next turn. Like that's yeah, that's kind of ridiculous. Yeah, that's yeah, that's huge. <laughs> so how about going second? Well, like on that first turn. So going second is tricky because you you really you have to decide whether or not you're going to keep your hand before you see anything happen, but there's this temptation to be responsive to whatever their turn one play is. There's this temptation to be like a ha gotcha. Like you played a creature and I had uh, a removal spell and knocked out your turn one play. So I just basically skipped your turn. Um, And now you have to completely reevaluate what your turn, your next turn is going to be because you don't have that creature on the table anymore. Or you played a card and gained an ember and I stole it. Um, So I completely undid all the work that you did on your first turn. It's, it's, really tempted to be like a gotcha in that regard um but at the same time if you keep a hand that lets you do that kind of gotcha move and then they don't generate an ember or they weirdly don't play a creature then you're stuck with a handful of responses that don't do anything so you kind of in a way skip your own turn um it's really interesting too um so they going first if i'm going first i'm going to expect that on on the other player's first turn uh they're going to be able to generate ember they're going to be able to put creatures into play because they're going to have more cards at their disposal to put on the table so i'm incentivized to keep removal for my second turn the third turn of the game um and ember control to kind of blank their first turn Um, even though they're trying to blank mine so that I can, you know, I can steal whatever Ember they manage to get. I can kill whatever creatures they put on and really slow their, their tempo down. So when you're going second, uh, knowing that the first player is thinking along those terms, is it worthwhile to blank their Ember control? Um, maybe don't generate, even if you can don't generate Ember on your first turn. Um, that way they can't steal it from you. They can't capture it. They can't interact with it. And it may be dead, uh, make some of their cards unplayable and wastes some of their, uh, their mulliganing decision. Um, likewise, maybe you don't play any creatures on your, on your first turn. Although, you know, as I keep saying, people not playing creatures, it seems more and more ridiculous to me because that's how you, that's the, the most efficient way to generate Ember. Um, but it's possible if you suspect it, you know, looking at your opponent's Archon card before the game, if you see they have a ton of Ember, uh, sorry, a ton of removal and, you know, you maybe don't have a hand with a, a creatures that matter so much on your first turn. Um, there's there's potentially some strategic opportunity in not playing creatures and then they have a dead hand. But you only want to do that in situations where you can benefit from it, where you can recover from it. You don't want to just skip your turn to blank some of their cards. You want to take your turn in a way that eliminates their removal cards, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to deciding what your hand's going to be like, like 
that you you have to make that decision in a vacuum, obviously. But when it comes to what you're going to do on your second turn, I I actually do tend to play more reactionary uh, to to what my opponent does, and 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 really what what I mean by that is like I keep an eye out for what that first turn card is, right? So if I have a hand that has kind of multiple answers, because I have the I have the luxury of having multiple decisions to to kind of go with on my second turn or on my first turn going second i look at okay what what's on the table right now or what card did they just play if they played virtuous works stealing one ember is not a terrible idea uh, especially if it's you know if it's on a stick like if you're, you're talking like uh, if i have a honestly the, the best the best example is that is like if you have charrette in your hand and you play charrette turn one and you steal that three amber from that glorious works like i mean granted there's a lot of magic christmas land going on here with still with that but being able to, to like i mean putting down a four power creature that steals three amber like it that totally that makes them invest more into trying to have that glorious works pay out for them than you know yeah. than if you didn't ha- have that in your hand uh, i mean i guess like Still. again magic christmas land but you know if, if so if they do that or or you know if, if they play a bomb creature like if they play uh mushroom man turn one and i have a fear in my hand i'm i'm gonna I, i'm gonna play and you know and, and my disc is supporting that enough i'm gonna play that fear i'm not gonna throw the fear back because that mushroom now they have to do well do i go untamed again uh and just replay the mushroom man or do i you know is am i me going to another house gonna change that and now i can set up for my next the next time that mushroom man comes out so so now that mushroom man is not unchecked when he comes into play i actually yeah. now have you know answers for that i mean i think a great turn one play is something that forces your opponent to change potentially change their plan so mushroom man is a great example you you slap a mushroom man down so mushroom man uh, is an untamed creature um i don't remember what's his base power uh two two base power two he has zero armor and he gets plus three power for each unforged key you control so if you get him down with no keys forged, he gets plus nine to power and is an 11, um, which is ridiculous. So yeah, he is, he's a good example of a, an early game turn one, turn two play that your opponent sees that hit the board and they have to completely reevaluate what they're doing because if they put a creature down, it's, you can kill it. There's there. I don't think there's anything in the game that can't be one shot by a fully powered mushroom man, except maybe another mushroom man with, stuff but i think in a vacuum dragon is a power 12 yeah i mean you wouldn't you wouldn't have a turn one play dragon Dragon yeah that's true so i guess seven amber to play it but yeah so without without you know it's in a vacuum i think mushroom man is probably the most powerful card um that you can play in the early game without ember without unforged key or with unforged keys uh and that really warps the the game around it so it's a good example or another one is mesis asp it's a um a shadows creature that has skirmish poison uh, i think it's power three i want to say yeah. um so that and that's another one do you like if if i drop a mesis asp now it can just kill anything on the opponent's side they have to be really careful how they're playing their creatures and where they're playing them and it it really dictates their decision making um so these are the kinds of plays that you you want to look for as a great turn one play um 
So I have a question for you, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it was something I just thought of. What is a good turn one first player play that you wouldn't call the, the same house next turn? That I wouldn't call the same house next turn? Um, oof. Shadow Self um, is really good because you play that. That was my that was my same exact thought. <laughs> Stole it. So you play your shadow self. So just for anyone that's not familiar, it's a uh, nine power creature, shadow creature that can't do any damage when it's fighting, um, either receiving a fight or trying to fight. I mean, I guess you can't even fight. It just with doesn't it. deal damage uh, when it fights or yeah, fight, is, is, yeah. when it fights um, or is attacked. Right. So, uh, but what it can do is that. Who, whatever creatures are neighboring it, um, any damage they take is instead dealt to the shadow self. So by playing that on turn one, um, even if you don't declare shadow on your next turn, you can then safely play creatures on either of its flanks, and they're going to be a lot more survivable than they would have been otherwise. And now your opponent can't really interact with your turn two plays because they have to get through that shadow self first, I'm barring a removal spell. Um, but with creatures on the board, they have to really it, it drastically warps their play decisions. Um, another one is Bulwark. Uh, it's a sanctum creature, four power, two armor, and similar to Shadow Self, uh, its neighbors get two armor. So that's another one that they're like, oh man, I have to get through this four, you know, four two armor thing. Otherwise, I have to deal with two armor to whoever's on its sides. Um, the upside of Bulwark is that it actually does do damage when it fights. Um, you know, at the expense of not having as much uh, protection for its side guys. Um, so these are these are good examples of turn one plays. Um, I can't think of a good. I can't think of a good turn one play uh, that isn't a creature. Um, Mesa's Asp. I mentioned that already. The the skirmish poisoner is a good turn one play because that means they either have to kill it um, that turn or they know that it's going to just come in and kill whatever they play. Um, I, guess, I guess that's a bad example from what you were asking. Sorry. Because yeah. uh, you'd want to, if you play Mesa Sass turn one, you want to be able you're to calling, declare shadows the next. Yeah. Right. Um, to be able to use the Mesa Sass. Not necessarily, because maybe, um, I, I think that one's probably 50-50. Because if you play your Asp and they uh, take their turn and they don't play any dangerous creatures, any creatures that you're really concerned with um, because they are scared of the asp and they need to wait until they can remove it. Then on your following turn, you don't have to declare shadows because there's nothing necessarily worth removing. So, I mean, you could just remove some random creature that they played. You could reap with it, but you could also further your game plan. Maybe you have a bulwark uh, in your hand and you just didn't want that turn one. You wanted to kind of bait out removal with your Mesa's Asp because the bulwark is also a really powerful, valuable card. Um, so you play bulwark and maybe you had a couple other Sanctum cards. Maybe Mesa's Asp was your only shadow card. So you play that your turn one, scare them off on their turn, and then it comes back to you and you dump a handful of Sanctum cards alongside that Mesa's Vasp. And now they've got, you know, a Mesa's Vasp with two armor on top of poison that they have to deal with. Yeah. Um, so it's it, there's there's arguments for even playing a turn one play where you you might want to play it or you could play it turn uh, you could use it turn two but don't because of the contents of your hand. It's, it's I mean it's all just goes to how interesting and strategic the game is even on the first couple turns. Yeah. Um, 
I think that one of my metrics for a good play at any point in the game is that I want to net two ember. Um, so uh, something like uh, a Mesa's Asp is good because I can reap with it. So, so in my mind, a creature is already net one ember because you can always reap with it, hopefully at least once. Um, and Mesa's Asp is even better because it can safely kill an opposing creature, which means I'm taking away their ability to reap one. Uh, so that's a net two. You know what I mean? Since the mm-hmm. Mesa's Asp can reap itself and then can also eliminate their uh, reaping ability at some point. That's kind of a net two play right there. Um, and granted, if it goes unanswered, it can reap more, it can kill more things, but I kind of look at it as like I, I, any given creature, I'm only my my fingers are crossed to get one turn with it activated um just because you bounce around different houses and everything else um twin bolt emission is a great example of a potentially uh net three because it generates ember itself um and then you could potentially take out two of your opponent's creatures and that deprives them of two reaping opportunities so that's net three so these are that's kind of my metric when i'm evaluating plays um I, i i'm happy if i can net a two ember swing with that metric uh if i only get one ember out of it like cycling a miasma on turn two because i just want to get it out of my hand um i'm not as happy but at least i got ember out of it uh and obviously if i get no ember out of an interaction then i'm not very happy at all yeah i think one of the things that i was thinking about too uh in in the sense is using a card like titan mechanics so titan mechanics one of those cards for me that i i i find is very interesting just because what it does so i believe it is a five or six power creature uh when it comes into play keys cost minus one i actually think it's i actually think it's six power so it's a big it is six power. it is a big thing to drop on the table turn you know turn one um and it definitely sets the pace for uh the the rest of the game or at least a rest of the the rest of the time that that creature exists um, but getting a a hand where you can potentially on turn two draw a ton of amber or generate a ton of amber and then having like something like key charge in your hand, uh, I find that would be a really interesting like turn one play. I'm not sure, you know, again, a lot of circumstantial s- circumstances there to, to pull it off, but of I think that would be I'd love to see that happen sometime. Yeah. Well and, and Titan is a really interesting turn one turn two play like is it good is it bad granted it lowers the key count for your opponent but in the early game it's going to be unlikely that they have five ember you know but when you pass back to them so they're not immediately going to be able to benefit from it and like let's say it's turn one right and you play titan mechanic obviously it's on a flank so all keys are now five instead of six uh you pass back to your opponent for their first turn now they have to decide do I just try to go whole hog with my with my hand and make as much ember as possible and let the Titan live? That way I can benefit from, you know, the, this discounted key? Or do I fear this six power creature? Because if he, uh, if the Titan player is not that worried about gaining the benefit from the Titan as far as the minus one ember, um, then are they just going to slam it face first into whatever I play and, and wreck my board? Um 
Plus, I don't know what they have in their hand. If they have two more creatures in their hand on their next turn, suddenly I've spent my entire turn trying to generate Ember to benefit from a Titan that is no longer relevant. Right. Now the Titan's just a six power beat stick because there's a creature on either side of it. Um, or do they have a bonkers turn and they're going to steal my Ember, get themselves up to five, keep the Titan on a flank, and now I'm behind and they've got an extra key like super fast. So it's a, it's a really, really interesting turn one play, early gameplay even, not even a turn one, but even turn one. Like that's a scary concept. There's a lot of a lot of decision making involved as far as how you want to handle a, an opposing titan. That makes it really, really interesting. Yeah, it it's interesting. I'm like looking at the card list here, and it is the most powerful. It is the most powerful creature in Logos. So I'm wondering if that negative one amber cost is intended to be a negative for the card to kind of. Well, yeah, because you pass it so. The Titan is kind of bad late game, and that's why, um, not bad late game, but that 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 minus one Ember ability is a detriment late game, and it's inconsequential early game. Uh, and when I say late game, I, I mean like it's not really like a mid to late game, like turns four or five onward, when you can actually benefit from that discounted key because you play the Titan, your opponent might already have five Ember, and you're just handing them a key, right? Um, so, so, and that, that's only going to happen mid to late game. So, but you get a six power creature in logos, which is, you know, so I think it's supposed to be a, a, a trade-off of, you know, the, the discount versus the power, but if you can make it work in your favor, or if you get it early game and then drop stuff next to it, um, that's, you know, that's a six power creature with no drawback. Or if you control, if you have a deck that really does a good job controlling your opponent's Ember, then, you know, they're, they're at zero most of the game. And hey, guess what? All my keys are cheap. Right. So do you track your wins and losses? Uh, I have. So I know um, you started tracking yours pretty early on. I did not so much. Uh, I think I started right around the time when we decided to start doing this podcast. Our first Tuesday that we went out to play at a store was the, uh, the first time I started tracking. Mm. And I think I've done pretty accurate tracking since then. Um, I haven't played on Crucible that much. I just haven't gotten around to it. I know we played a little bit initially. Yeah. Um, so my my tracking isn't as, uh, uh, as robust as yours. I think my... I think I've, I've got one deck that's played four games or five games. I think that's the most that any of my decks have played. Yeah, because I think it's four and one. Um, and uh, But I, I like the concept of, of tracking my wins and losses. So I, I guess the, the, the accompanying question is, uh, do you feel there's value in doing it? Um, is there value? I don't know. I guess it depends on why you're doing it i mean i just think it's kind of neat to track the wins and losses i don't know if i'm necessarily going to gain anything out of it i think i would have to play a statistically significant amount of games with all of my decks and this is just my personal uh feeling on it but i I think that if like let's say i have two decks and i play those decks all the time and i have i've been tracking all the wins and losses for those decks and let's say i'm around 50 percent uh, win rate on those. Well, that that doesn't necessarily tell me a lot because it doesn't tell me if I'm getting better as a player. Because for all I know, I was uh, 0 and 10, and then won 10 in a row. But there's no timeline on when your wins are tracked, so it doesn't really show me that I've been improving. Um, it also doesn't really give me a basis of comparison because I'm not playing anything other than those two decks. 
So if I were playing all of my decks a statistically significant amount of times and I was able to track it over a timeline, that's when I would get valuable data um, as you know, more of a, a competitive minded player. That having been said, I'm still totally going to track them and I think it's really fun. So I'm going to do it because it's fun, even if it's no benefit. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I've been doing it mostly just to see, just to get an idea of what decks aren't fitting my play style and what what I can do to change that and like look at those cards a little bit more uh, in depth. Mostly because I have a I have okay. a quite a few like O and four decks, uh, and I and like I look at them and I don't feel like they're bad and and they do have a lot of synergies. It's just like this question of what am I doing wrong with you know with these plays that are making it so it it can't win. Uh, so that that's that's mostly what I've been been kind of peeking at is like. What can I learn from the the tracking yeah. that I do have? Uh, you know, you know, or why a deck's going fifty fifty? Like, is there a misplay that I'm I'm just not seeing here that's causing me to lose more games? Yeah, or something I mean, like that. Yeah, are you playing the cards wrong? Are you playing the deck wrong? Is there something about it, or is it just a bad deck? I mean, it gives you. I guess if you don't know how well you're doing with a deck, um, numerically speaking, then it's really hard to tell if that's you or the deck like you don't even know to look like if, if you're not tracking any of your wins and losses then you'd be like i think i think i've been winning a lot with this deck or i think i've been losing a lot with this deck but you're you're going to be biased by whatever your most recent experiences are so maybe you feel like you've you've been losing with this deck but in reality you've won 15 games with it and only lost five and it's just that the last three games you've played with it you've lost and that's just you know dumb luck um so it's it's I guess it's probably pretty if if you want to improve with a particular deck, it's probably beneficial to track your wins and losses, regardless of all the fancy stuff I was talking about earlier about timelines right. and everything else. Um, but I guess a, a good question, too, is so you you track a lot more. You play more on Crucible than I do. You track a lot more than I do, period, just numerically. Um, what games are, are there any games that you don't count? Are there any games where you're like, um, I'm not going to count that one. That wasn't really a good example. Like, are there, are there, is there a certain criteria you use to decide uh, at all if, if a game should so count? So I've been tracking, uh, at first I was tracking everything regardless if I was piloting the deck or not. I've kind of backed off of that. I mostly track any time that the deck gets put on the table with my hand, uh, by my hand. So, okay. And, yeah, with you as and, pilot. and oh, like the oh, thing, no. the thing that I was, I, I actually did think about too in in a couple of situations, it, and really it comes down to the crucible and the nature of it. Uh, when I do play on the crucible, is do I count disconnect wins or or do I count disconnects as wins uh, or do I count certain you know certain events that happen in the crucible? Um, like a misclick, or if there's, there's probably not no, any bugs, but if someone misclicks or I something happens, I attribute misclicks to misplays in a, in a lot of ways. Like okay, so it, you know if someone, I mean, again, like I'll bring it up uh, for the third time, I think on this podcast, like that time that I played key abduction, like I could be like, oh well, that was, I mean, I guess it technically wasn't a misclick, but like if I miss miss choose a house, um, you know, like like that's. I attributed that to the same as me just saying out loud, like, oh, I choose this house and whatever. Um, what I what I do, I do track if someone concedes, which I, 
I mean, that just makes sense. But a lot of times, like it really, the the quality of player really depends on on what you get in the in the crucible. Sometimes someone just concedes with no explanation, and generally those I, I do track they... just because it's like a moment of like, well, you either saw something and you didn't want to say anything in chat, or you, you know, you just didn't want to say anything to me, but you had to leave. But I still count that as a win for myself because we played through know, the I game. Guess... You know what I mean? I guess it depends when they're conceding. Like, uh, if if the game has gone on for a while and you're at two keys and they uh, are at, you know, it doesn't matter how many keys they're at. Um, but if if the game is played a good amount of time and they concede, I I definitely agree that I'd call that a win unless they say like, oh hey, I have to run to dinner. But even then, I I would try to do my best to evaluate the board and say, am I like, do I have a better than even chance that I would have won this game? I mean, obviously, you have no idea what they're going to draw, what you're going to draw and everything. But just uh, the board as is. Like, let's say um, uh, actually one of the um, interesting things we looked over was the tiebreakers in the tournament rules um, and how those are tracked. You could even use that as your concession. Like if it's an out of the blue concession or a disconnect, you could use the tiebreaker to figure out if it was a win or loss. Um, so that's yeah. kind of an interesting thing. If you're playing against a... Um, a new player uh like not not obviously if you're if you're teaching someone the game i assume you wouldn't count that win or loss um but if it's someone that's like oh i, I you know i just got this deck i've only played like two games uh and then you play against that person would you count that win or loss like if you lost if oh, you yeah, lost absolutely. to them would you count I would, that if you i would won count it regardless them, you count it. well you yeah. count the win as well Interesting. i mean it's still one right like it, in, in that sense if we played through the entire game like regardless of your experience level that criteria doesn't. I, I don't think that that criteria plays for me. Um, so the cal the caliber of opponent doesn't dictate whether or not you track it. So like if you go up against someone that maybe has never even played a card game before and you just blow them out of the water, um, or obviously they played a card. So like this is their second time playing Keyforge, um, but they've never played anything before it, and they're obviously just not a very skilled player, and you just annihilate them. Um, you would count yeah, that Yeah, I mean, if, think about it this way, too. If, if that was a new tournament setting for somebody and they just decided to jump in on a sealed, and even if you didn't know, uh, you know, you didn't know that deck, but you're, you know, you sit down across from this person, they're like, yeah, this is my first time playing Keyforge I learned 15 minutes ago. That win still counts in the tournament setting. <laughs> like, yeah, that's it, fair. Like, that's their fair. experience doesn't matter. Like, and it's not like I'm counting that win to rub it in their face or whatever. It's just like, you know, did I win with no. the deck? Yes. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to add it to my tracking. But I guess if you're, I think, I guess it loops back to the original purpose of why are you tracking the wins? Like if you're tracking the wins to try and get an idea of how good you are with that deck, um, raffle stomping someone who's never played before while valid in a tournament is not necessarily a valid indication of you being skilled with the deck so much as them being unskilled at the game. Like if you just flipped over and played random cards, would you have won? I mean, that's fair. Like it's not. They, so, I mean, I'm not, I'm, and I get, I'm not critiquing oh, no. you for counting or hypothetically counting that, but I just, it's an interesting, like, do you or don't you? Cause at the same token, if you were to play against that same person and lose, like, and this is, I'm kind of laughing at myself because I feel like if I if I won against a person like that, I would be reticent to track it um, because it kind of feels un, like an unfair win. Like I, I was probably like 90 percent to win that game, just right. skill and deck quality, maybe. Um, but 
if I lost against that person, if that other 10% happened and I lost to them, I would be in, I would be much, much less reticent to count it. I would be like, oh yeah, I lost to a new person. I mean, that, that, that counts, but then I don't think of the other side of it. Like, well, if I won against that person, would I count it? And it should yeah. be equal either way. If you wouldn't count it when you win, you shouldn't count it when right. you lose and vice versa. So yeah, interesting. So yeah. count your I games, mean, folks. <laughs> it probably it doesn't take much time and it will probably help you in the long run more than i mean i think with you. the new with the chain bound stuff that's come out and and how that stuff's going to get tracked there i think that's going to i mean your 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 wins and losses are going to get tracked anyway so oh that's we didn't say that at the beginning of this topic but that's important to know this is not related yeah, to chain bound this is just in the app yeah. you can go in and manually put in your wins and losses um just for personal yeah. you know satisfaction that's what we're talking about this whole time probably should have put that at the beginning like i mean you don't have a chance to not <laughs> oh, well, yeah I was if you made say, it this you far. don't have a chance to not log your losses in in right in a, an actual event i just didn't yeah. want to confuse anyone that was like i didn't realize you could put in your own wins and losses for chain bound like nope that's not what we're talking about so yeah so like no wonder there's undefeated people <laughs> yeah that's fair <laughs> like oh yeah i don't know what the problem is i'm like 24 chains on my deck because I just pumped up a bunch of wins. Yeah. I mean, no, it's easy. <laughs> what do you mean I have to prove it? Um, <laughs> yeah. So. so I think that about does it for us today. Um, do you have anything that you want to yeah. plug there, Ryan? Uh, no, not really. We, um, I think, uh, I mean, we can just mention our social media stuff. We're on Facebook, uh, we're on Twitter and we're at email, um, for Twitter and email. We are, uh, keychains pod. Um, for Twitter, it's at obviously, and for email, it's keychainspod at uh, gmail.com. Uh, and for Facebook, it's I, I assume yeah, it's, it's keychains. Key two, two separate words, keychains. Nope, it's all right? the same. I mean, if you're just no. searching for it, yeah, it's two separate words. But uh, okay. if you want to search just like at keychainspod, that will work as well. Gotcha. So I didn't realize that was a Facebook thing. Yeah, no, learn something Facebook, new every. Copying everybody. Yeah. Like, yo, that Twitter thing. Yeah. And just, you know, that's Facebook. So anyway, yeah. I think it's going to be All right, man. It. Well, have a good one. Yeah, you too. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And uh, join us again next week. Bye. Bye.